On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Let's get straight into our tour of the front pages of this morning's newspapers. We'll start with the Business Post. Developers could get tax breaks to build apartments. Michael Brennan tells us tax breaks for developers who build apartments rather than houses are being examined by the government in an effort to tackle the slowdown in residential construction. We're told the soaring price of timber, steel, concrete, fuel and energy is making it unviable for many companies to build, while short-term, short-term labour shortages are also another persistent problem. Tax breaks for developers are now being considered, we're told, as part of plans to activate 70,000 idle planning permissions for residential developments. The Business Post understands the government is specifically looking at tax breaks for apartments rather than houses. Most planning applications are for houses and they will have to be built to meet the housing needs, says a government source. That all comes as developers have warned that there aren't enough measures in place to promote apartment building in Ireland. Um, Also on the front page, uh, the European Commission has contacted the Irish government after Aeroflot, the Russian state airline, claimed that it had bought 10 Boeing 777 planes from an Irish company that would appear to be um, a possible breach of the sanctions implemented since the invasion of Ukraine. Um, And we also learned that Stripe, the online payments company founded by John and Patrick Collison, clawed back pension contributions from some staff after it made them redundant in November of last year. The e-commerce giant is valued at $63 billion, but it's understood to have clawed back some pension contributions that it previously made to staff who've been working with the firm for less than two years when they were made redundant at the end of last year. Stripe cut around 90 jobs from its Dublin office as part of an overall uh, wider restructuring of its global operations. Um, The pension clawbacks are legally permitted under Irish pension rules, but they only apply to staff who've been working with the company for less than two years. Stripe declined to provide any information. That's the business post. Uh, Front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, a little bit of the latest on the, the British royal saga. Peace talks between Prince Harry and the royal family could be held before the coronation under plans being discussed by those close to King Charles. Understood that Charles wants to have his second son in attendance at his coronation in May. Uh, obviously unlikely given the current circumstances, but you never know. Um, the main story in the Sunday Times today concerns excess debts now, which has seen uh, excess debts spiking uh, in the present time uh, to rival the worst of the pandemic. We're told in analysis by Rachel Lavin and Sharon McGowan that Ireland has seen a huge spike in excess mortality that rivals the peak of the pandemic, yet COVID-19 is no longer the primary cause of death. Uh, post-pandemic pressures on the HSE, such as treatment backlogs and a wave of late diagnoses, uh, allied to the added pressures on the health system of a lingering twin-demic, appear to be taking their toll. Um, the seven-day rolling average of deaths reported up until January the 9th, 2023, um, is 152. Now, that's almost as high as the weekly average uh, reported in the early days of 2021. That was the peak of the disastrous third wave just after the the arrival of the Alpha variant into Ireland. That's according to a special analysis of notices on rap.ie. Now we're three years on from the beginning of the pandemic. The data is indicated that high levels of deaths yet again. At Christmas 2022 saw more death postings than any Christmas in the past five years, higher than even the past two Christmases of the pandemic. The total number of postings in December to RIP.ie, which tends to tally within a reasonable range with the official death figures, was almost a third higher than the norm expected for that period. Um, Excess deaths, which is the number of deaths above the norm expected, were 30% higher than the pre-pandemic average between 2016 and 2019. And we're also told in the front of the Sunday Times on a similarly related uh, COVID story uh, that 97% of those eligible in the 18 to 49 age group have not yet had uh, their second COVID-19 booster. Uh, That is being attributed to uh, perhaps uh, low awareness of its availability. I suspect another issue is the fact that a lot of people would have had COVID inside the last six months and actually aren't eligible uh, to get the booster just yet. Uh, The front page of the Mail on Sunday leads with an interview conducted with Minister Simon Harris who has, uh, it says, fired the starting gun on the next election, saying voters face a 
clear choice between populism and stability. Uh, no prizes for guessing who he's talking about there. Uh, and the front page of the Sunday Independent. The Department of Housing's top civil servant is embroiled in an ongoing dispute with the government over his demand for a pay increase that would take his annual salary to a quarter of a million euro a year. Uh, as it happens, the author of that story is with us today to go through the Sunday papers. It's Hugh O'Connell, who's the deputy political editor. Um, Hugh, give us the background to this story. How would a civil servant be entitled, or he believes, entitled to a quarter of a million a year? Yeah, so there's, there's three different grades of salary for secretaries general in uh, government departments. Now, most secretaries general are on the second grade and uh, uh, three are on the, the, f- the first grade, which um, is the secretaries general in the Department of the Taoiseach, Finance and Public Expenditure. Now, up until July of last year, those two grades were the same. Um, historically, they had been different, but um, secretaries general pay um, was capped uh, during the financial crisis over a decade ago. Okay, so um, irrespective of there being de- separate grades, yeah. they ultimately took home the same amount. <coughs> they anyway. ultimately took home about €215,000. But as part of the unwinding of the austerity era pay cuts in the public service, this is the, uh, the FEMP, Financial Emergency Measures in the Public Interest, um, the uh, civil, uh, t- top civil servants, the secretaries general in each department who were responsible for the running of government departments, mm. um, the uh, secretaries general on grade one uh, were uh, restored or had their pay increased uh, to uh, two hundred and fifty thousand euro. There was a pay increase of thirty four thousand euro, and secretaries general in the grade two uh, category had their pay increased by uh, nineteen thousand okay. euro to take their pay to two hundred thirty five. So as euro. it stands right now, so mo- most uh, grade two secretary general are on two three five, but yet the secretary general in the Department of Housing reckons that he shouldn't be grade two. He ought to be grade one. Yeah, well, his contention, as I understand it, and as I report today in the paper, is that when he agreed to move to the Department of Housing in July 2020, as the current government was formed, he had been Secretary General in the Department of Transport, it there, it was agreed that he would be put on the grade one salary scale, so as that he would eventually benefit from the restoration of, of FEMPI and his salary would be higher as a yeah. result. And obviously that would also have knock-on implications in terms of his pension. Um, but uh, that is disputed by the Department of Public Expenditure, which is ultimately responsible for these matters. And this is an ongoing HR dispute, as it's been characterised to me, which has sort of escalated since these uh, this pay restoration in July, which has obviously now put this 15,000 differentiation between yeah. grade one and grade two. And uh, Graham Doyle uh, is adamant that he should be uh, on the grade one scale and that this was agreed when he moved to the department. But obviously that's not the yeah. position of Deeper. It is a dispute. It is ongoing, as I understand it. Um, there has been the uh, possibility of legal action been mentioned in this in this dispute. Uh, and as I understand it, the uh, Attorney General has been asked to kind of look at this matter and see whether um, anything can be done about it. But nice. the Department of Public Expenditure's position is that um, this is something that is all wrapped up in a review that's been carried out of mm. uh, pay at a senior level in the public service by okay. Dr. Donald Butler. Uh, and that is due to reports, I think, in the first quarter of this year. And all of this is obviously coming in the context not just of the housing crisis, but also the issue of top civil servants' pay has been a particularly controversial one for this government because, as uh, a lot of your listeners will know, uh, Robert Watt, who's the Secretary General of the Department of Health... So that's beyond grade one. Uh, yeah, technically he's actually categorised at grade two, but as we know, the government uh, decided in 2021 that the Secretary General of the Department of Health should be paid €292,000, which has now, with the uh, unwinding of FEMPI, uh, gone above €300,000, and that's what Robert Watt, so, Watt earned in, so in, a, in a special arrangement that has been created for the post uh, I, I, I don't want to health. blow people's minds too much with the details of this, because it's 11.11 on a Sunday morning. Yeah. But, so there's he's Robert Watt is running a grade two department, 
and is earning over 300,000. Everyone else who runs a grade two department is earning 235. Graham yes. Doyle contends now that housing is actually a grade one department, which is why he, he should be receiving 250. Is, this, this could be getting way beyond the, the, the scope of either what you've written in the article or anything that you might know anyway. Um, was, is the idea that housing is grade one, is that because of the load of the department or was it just C part of the package that he contends was put in place to um, get him to I, move? I, I, I'll be honest, I'm not aware specifically of the detail in and around that, but I imagine that you know mo- moving a Secretary General from one department to part the transport to a department that is obviously at the forefront of the government's um, yeah. priorities in terms of trying to, to resolve or, or to fix or to in some way uh, impact the <laughs> yeah. housing and homelessness crisis uh, that you would want the Secretary General in there who, uh, or, or sorry, that the Secretary General in there would, would perhaps in this instance expect that he would, um, you know, that it would be a grade one department in terms of responsibilities and core priorities of government. And this is something I suppose that the, the, the Butler uh, review is, is examining is that when a government sort of shifts it prior, its priorities, yeah. does that then have a knock-on consequence in terms of uh, what we should be paying the civil servants uh, to in those departments, mm. uh, the top civil servants in particular. And I suppose, you know, one of the rationales that the government has given, and, and particularly uh, Micheál Martin when he was Taoiseach gave, in defending the pay increase in the Department of Health was that this was reflective of the government's desire to get a handle on health and to fix health. I mean, we saw this elsewhere in the public service where uh, Paul Reid was paid uh, a lot more than any of his predecessors in the HSE Mm. because it was seen that a high salary was needed to attract the right kind of candidate to this position. Similarly, uh, the Garda Commissioner, for example, Drew Harris, um, I think is paid more than his predecessors because, again, it was felt that we should be paying, uh, or the government felt that it should be paying uh, civil servants at the very top of the public service uh, yeah. very high salaries uh, in order to attract the best candidates. Mm. Um, and I suppose, you know, similarly, yeah. that might be a, a position viewed by, uh, a position held yeah. by, by, by Graham Doyle, or certainly that, you know, he's in a very... Uh, difficult department, mm. a department that is at the forefront of the government's priorities and that his salary should reflect that. Uh, I, I definitely suspect it's probably news to a lot of people that there is actually something of a hierarchy of departments anyway, that there are, you, you might have thought that all 15 government departments are all 18 or 19 as they are, yeah. are now would be kind of equal in the eyes of the law, maybe not so much anyway. Uh, before I come off that, we're also joined uh, as due to go through the Sunday papers by Breda Brown, who's uh, Communications Director at Unique Media. Um, Breda, before we move off that, um, I, I suspect it probably looks... Greenock may well have a very valid point and he may feel like he has now been done out of a pay rise to which he was duly entitled. But I suspect to outsiders, it probably looks a little bit uh, like it shouldn't be the top priority for a Secretary General who is on 235,000 one way or another to be considering legal action over another 15. Yeah, the optics of this are not great considering we're in the middle of a housing crisis at the moment and yeah, we're talking about just under under 20,000 uh, of an increase when he's already on 235,000. What I find interesting here as well is that he's contending that the recategorization of his pay grade was agreed by the Department of the Taoiseach but surely there will be written documentation somewhere mm. that he should have that would back that up unless it was a verbal agreement. Yeah. Um, but this is now being disputed by um, by deeper. But as we said, yeah, the optics are not yeah. good. We're, they're not good. Maybe you're onto something. I should we'll make this the final word of that. You might be onto something if he says that it was signed off by the Department of Antioch when it's public expenditure, which is responsible for mm-hmm. the running of the public sector. So you might argue that actually the Department of the Taoiseach doesn't have the final say and he may have been given a commitment from but one department. Why but did maybe he get a commitment from them, well, them yeah. then if they yeah, weren't I mean, the, the, the department involved? There are more questions in the story. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> in the exactly. story uh, are created 
by the story, and I mean, look, the story also reflects that, that none of the, go- the government departments that I approached about this uh, were prepared to comment on it. So okay. whether that stands uh, or whether that holds, I suppose, going into next week and beyond and whether, mm. you know, opposition politicians might want to look into this or mm. the Rockers Committee might yeah. want to look into this. Uh, there, there are plenty of things that I'm sure TDs will we'll want see. to raise when the dog gets back uh, exactly. from its recess. It's still not back from its recess, not back until noon on Wednesday, but I'd imagine that now may be uh, something that they want to throw into the mix. Um, Breed of the front page of the business post about developers getting tax breaks to build apartments and interestingly apartments for which there are already planning permissions but apparently not being pursued because of the financial viability of those projects um, how do you think that will look because I mean there are two ways of looking at it there's well you need to do anything to try and stimulate construction again but it's tax breaks for a sector which isn't doing all that badly No but what was interesting here is that there are 70,000 idle planning permissions for residential developments. 70,000. And I mean, at a time when um, um, planning is being focused on quite a lot at the moment that they are not doing enough to maybe simulate um, um, construction and all the rest. I was just surprised that that figure was as as big as it is. So we have 70,000 idle planning permissions. Why aren't they being built? So this is obviously the reason now why the government are looking at tax breaks for developers. And they are also, um, you know, looking at the the fact that there are huge soaring prices, obviously, and there are labour shortages and this is probably the reason why they're, they're not being built. Uh, interestingly though, the tax breaks will be for apartments more than likely rather than houses and again this is where we're getting back into the you know, let's build them quick, build them high and, and try and resolve our, our housing crisis. Um, Michael Stanley, who's the chief executive of Kern Homes, he said last week as well that there is a, a, a bias towards low density suburban housing, whereas he says, you know, what we need are apartments um, and that there are over mm. 80,000 planned um, in the pipeline. So, look, I think, you know, this is like health as well. It's like property and health are the two issues that we keep going on about and we keep talking about at the moment mm. and we just can't seem to find the resolution. What is it? Yeah, uh, we probably still will get to health issues a bit later in this hour as well. Um, Hugh, again, there's probably arguably another optics issue here as well, where um, it probably doesn't look great to be offering special tax treatment to a sector that's doing pretty okay for itself. But then there's also the substance of needing housing units and needing them pretty pronto. Yeah, um, and, and this is something that's kind of been on the table, I think, since kind of late last year. Um, I remember, I think I did an interview with Dara O'Brien in, in October, where he talked about looking at, at maybe incentivising um, apartment development, because uh, it's one of the things that, that his examination of the industry, I suppose, had, had thrown up as, as an issue for, for developers, where they felt that it wasn't um, cost effective for them to be developing departments. Mm. But I mean, the government has, has a range of schemes in this area. And I think elsewhere in the business post, Killian Woods has a story about the Cree Conaha yeah. uh, cities. Is it cities? Cree Conaha cities. Cree Conaha cities, yeah. Cities and um, the fact that it hasn't been signed. And this is a, a, a 450 million euro scheme to uh, bankroll the development of apartments uh, in cities, in urban centres, um, with a view to... Um, you know, uh, delivering thousands of units uh, for people to live in and to uh, go some way towards uh, solving the housing crisis, mm. and it hasn't been signed off um, by the European Commission. So actually, this this money hasn't been distributed yet. It's, but and but, indeed, if, if, that, but uh, if that needs European yeah. Commission sign off, then presumably special tax treatment to benefit one particular sector or one particular project would also need sign off. And if um, we're still nine months waiting for the last one, potentially, yeah, potentially. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I think that's been discussed in the context of sort of incentivising developers is uh, potential VAT cuts uh, on construction uh, for specific sectors of construction. Um, so whether that is something that could be done quite easily, I'm not sure, or whether it would be something that they'd have to go back to the European Commission about. Um, but but certainly, you know, the, the, the other issue with the with the Creekonaha uh, city scheme has been the, the lack of interest from developers. And one of the reasons, I think, and this came up uh, in the 
uh, summit that the Taoiseach held with uh, mm. a whole bunch of housing uh, interest groups yeah. uh, recently. Um, was it this week or last week? Uh, earlier this week. Earlier this it's been week. A long week. God, it's been yeah. a long week. Yeah. <laughs> um, was th- this idea? I think um, the Irish Times reported that that this this idea that the developers wanted the money up front as opposed to getting it afterwards, um, and that they believed that this would help to uh, sort of get them building apartments. So. All of these issues, I, I think the government are going to have to take into consideration the context of what seems to me to be a, a, a you know a move towards further policy interventions yeah. in the first half of this year, uh, which could include uh, the kind of things that developers want, including tax cuts. Yeah, um, one thing it just, it's worth stressing about Killian Wood's piece on, on page nine is that the government says that it began consulting with the European Commission in January of last year and then made a formal application um, in May of last year looking for a decision that this scheme would be compatible with state aid rules. That's the idea of subsidising the construction of apartments and it's still waiting for guidance and a spokesperson for the European Commission says they can't tell when it's going to be given, that they're still ongoing and that it can't comment on the content of contacts or prejudge uh, the timing of its outcome, which... You, you lament the, the apparent lack of urgency. I mean, I'm sure these things need time to be worked out and fully thought through. But when there's so much of a crisis and there's a lot of government money, which, as we know, is sitting there unspent waiting to be deployed for these projects, it's kind of hard to fathom uh, why these things are taking so long. Um, but I'm going to go to a break in a couple of minutes. But just before I do, there's a couple of opinion pieces um, dotted mm. around the papers, including the Sunday Independent. Uh, at one uh, with the fairly blunt headline uh, on page 21 of the Sindo, asking industry to solve the housing problem won't mm. work. Which and doesn't bode well, then, if the government is considering tax breaks and subsidies for it the industry. It doesn't. It's by Lorcan Sir, uh, who's a senior lecturer in uh, TUD. And again, this was what came out during the week that the state potentially could buy some or all of the 70,000 apartments that are in developments um, but haven't yet been built. Interestingly, though, the point he's making is that a lot of those apartment developments are for one beds. Um, and when there's obviously demand instead really for three or four beds for, for social housing, for, for families um, to prevent them falling into, into homelessness. So he's saying that blocks of hundreds of one beds is nobody's idea of decent housing and the state could be storing up more problems than it thinks it's actually solving. The second interesting point he's making is that the carbon intensive um, required to produce these 70,000 apartments will wipe out Ireland's ability to meet our climate emissions targets, um, which he goes on okay. to say, is this going to be an issue now for the Green Party? He said, so yeah, that basically you could, that building one bed apartments is too carbon ineffective effectively in, in te- and we okay. won't meet our emissions he said uh, the Green Building Council estimates we should be building just 21,000 new houses a year um, with the balance to be taken from other vacant houses from, from across the state so yeah that will be will be an issue as we say for, for the Green Party then mm. going forward and then a slightly more existential matter uh, writes Lorcan sir is whether the state should be stepping in here at all mm. and propping up what are ultimately poor investment decisions by landowners mm-hmm. um, which is a, an argument but again, the substance of there being such a chronic crisis would suggest, well, yeah, that we, we, we need the outcome. We need the product. We need so to get s- on with it. We need to sort it out. And following on then from that, the Taoiseach actually, um, Lorcan Sir is calling it, expressed the curious view that he doesn't mind who, what gets built because someone will live in it. Uh, Lorcan Sir says, does he really not care if the majority of our new housing is just for rent, for example, an expensive rent at that? And if the state doesn't promote homes for sale, then what will happen when the, those having to rent retire? Nobody can say because nobody knows. Mm. Also, he says renters tend not to vote Fine Gael, homeowners do. Interesting. <laughs> so uh, maybe the idea is that the government wants to just mint all these new uh, Fine Gael voters, although I'm sure that's not uh, Dara O'Brien's uh, final, well, final word to you. About, about the... the uh the number of people who've bought a home in the last year, I think it's just 15,000, 16,000 and mm. they, they've kind of 
stress that statistic the government ministers particularly the Taoiseach and the housing minister um, in the last few months as a defence of their housing policy that more and more people are becoming homeowners uh, yeah and potential uh, Fine Gael and Fianna voters yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I'm sure they have no reason to not vote anyone else at all um, yeah uh, lots lots more in, on the housing issue uh, across the papers but we're going to draw a line under it there we're going to be talking about the Damien English saga and some other issues in politics and more in the papers uh, when we're back with Hugh and Brida after this it is 27 minutes past 11 this morning. Gavin Riley with you on the record until one o'clock. Uh, we're still joined in the studio by Breda Brown and Hugh O'Connell to go through the stories in this morning's newspapers. But we're going to take a quick pause from that because we want to talk about the news that's emerging today from Nepal of a very serious plane crash in which the Department of Foreign Affairs confirms that it's investigating reports of an Irish person being on board. Pat Falvey, uh, the adventurer and explorer, is well versed in that part of the world. And Pat joins us on the line now. Pat, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, tell us a bit about your knowledge of this area of Nepal, Pokhara, and and how much of a risk it is for aviation? Yeah, well, Pokhara is one of the cities of Nepal, and it's uh, in mountainous area. It's uh, like the main base for the Annapurna region. Uh, the airports themselves, that are like there's two runways there, and they're fairly good. Uh, it's not at that high of an altitude, so I think until the investigation come through, uh, it's not going to be too sure what happened with the plane. But a lot of the flights that were coming from here were coming from Kathmandu, and uh, which the international flights would fly in, and then tourists and locals from that whole region would depart from Kathmandu and then head into Pokhara, which is one of the main tourist regions, you know, in Nepal. I think you've been telling our colleagues in the newsroom that this is a route that you've flown uh, dozens of times, possibly up to 80 times yourself. So to your mind, that this would be a fairly routine trip and that if the, ter- if the terrain is not terribly challenging, then obviously something's gone terribly wrong in this case. Yeah, it looks like that. Yeah, the, the terrain itself, um, you know, it, it, it's it's okay, but it can be uh, fairly dangerous depending on the weather conditions. Um, I'm not saying anything, but I, I I presume at this stage we'd have to wait until the investigation come home, uh, come back to see whether it was a plane fault or whether it was a weather condition fault. The reports aren't coming back in. We were looking at some of the videos earlier, and it didn't look that bad. So I think we just have to wait and see. I suppose our condolences will be going out to all the families that have been affected by this. And like we believe at the moment there's one Irish person on it. And we'll get further information from our contacts in Nepal at a later stage because we're very interested in that, seeing it's an Irish person. The Nepalese authorities do say that there was um, reports of an Irish person on board. The Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin says that it cannot yet confirm that for itself. Um, there's also a spokesperson for the Nepalese aviation authorities who says that the weather on the day was, was pretty clear, as you say. Yeah, and uh, like this can happen quite a lot. Um, so like as I say, you have to wait for the investigation to come back. It doesn't look like it was a weather condition that uh, brought the plane down. So I think time will tell in relation to that. Generally speaking, although we're referring to the conditions as being fairly hospitable on the day, given that Nepal is fairly mountainous to begin with, is there always a certain element of risk associated with aviation in that part of the world? Well, there is on different regions. I wouldn't have expected that in Pokhara. Like, you know, on the smaller uh, mountain airstrips, yes. Um, but Pokhara like, is like an international airport. They're, they're actually just constructing a new international airport there, the same as, you know, Kathmandu. Um, so it's, like, it's really hard to say, but it is uh, like one of the main tourist regions. You know, as I say, that whole Annapurna, Mustang, you know, they'd all actually descend into that. 
And, um, you know, like, I'm just shocked to say, like, you know, that an accident has occurred. Like, every time, every time something like this happens anywhere in the world or on an adventure route, um, you know, it's it's of concern. But adventure, um, which I wouldn't have expected it for Pokhara, like, all of it spells an element of risk. And, you know, I think people, like, when they fly to Nepal or any of the those countries, you know, are always actually having in the back of their mind the concern. But as I say, you know, I've been there probably between 80 and 120 times, depending on the different airports that I fly in and out of. And, you know, if I was over-concerned about it, I'm just going here for my own kind of experience, like over 30 years. Mm. Um, it, it, it hasn't stopped me, and I don't think it will stop people that are into adventure from going in and out there. Pat Falvey, thank you very much for joining us this morning and on the record that's Pat Falvey, the well-known adventurer and uh, explorer uh, joining us about that news from Nepal. Uh, if there is any confirmation about uh, an Irish person being on board that flight we'll of course bring it to you at some point uh, later in the programme. Um, lots of texts and tweets coming in about what we're already discussing about high-rise developments and one-bedroom apartments. Uh, Paul in Dublin says high-rise developments aren't what's wanted or needed. It's just a quick fix remedy that will lead to social problems in years to come. Houses are what are needed and what the majority want. We shouldn't let developers dictate what way people should be living rather than what way they want to live. Um, Rory says that meeting our carbon targets is a legal requirement of the state. It's incumbent on all political parties and although the legislation may have been a Green Party want or demand, the budgets themselves are now the law of the land, uh, says Rory. Thank you very much, Rory. Uh, someone else texts in to say it's a taxation problem, not a landlord investment problem. Uh, and Tom says that the demand for one-bedroom homes is huge. Two bedrooms on all social housing lists and in the private market. The demand for three and four-bedded properties has shrunk, uh, says Tom. Uh, and finally for now, one tweet about the um, situation involving this, the um, chief civil servant in the Department of Housing. Um, one person says that ultimately one person's paying conditions is between themselves and their employer and nobody else. But if that one person hasn't had the wish to get a political agreement in writing, then more fool them, uh, says that texter. Uh, let me know what you think. 53106 is the number for your text on the record. NT is our hashtag on Twitter. Um, understandably, given the week that there's been, there's a lot written across the papers about the Damien English controversy and about the situation involving SIPO, the Public Affairs Watchdog and whether in fact it has the teeth to be an effective watchdog. Uh, Hugh, you've actually written some analysis about this, about how SIPO has been um, looking for extra powers uh, for quite a while and is continually... <laughs> it, is, it is continually fobbed off. Uh, and continu- yeah. But I mean continually, I mean literally every year for years. Yeah, I mean, like, jeez, I... Geez, I, I first started writing about this when I was in the Business Post five or six years ago. Um, you know, SIPO had produced this, uh, its annual report, and in every annual report going back almost since its foundation, it had been uh, requesting the government to give it more powers under legislation, um, ignored by successive governments. Um, the closest we got was uh, Brendan Howland when he was public expenditure minister in 2015, I, I think brought about some public sector, uh, I, I forget the name of the bill, but it was, it was something about standards in public office, and it was um, with the aim of overhauling SIPO. And it fell when when the Fine Gael Labour government fell in, in 2016. Mm. And the, the last government showed no appetite to do anything about this. Now, in fairness, the current um, government, perhaps, uh, you know, having had to deal now with two ministerial resignations mm. Uh, mm. over ethics issues, um, has uh, shown a bit more uh, willingness to, to get on top of this. And Michael McGrath, when he was in public expenditure, um, brought a memo to cabinet just before uh, the end of last year uh, signalling an overhaul of ethics legislation mm. uh, and I think Pascal Donoghue will now be expected to, to pilot this through the, the mm. to, to bring it in yeah. before government this year. I, I see incidentally that the public consultation on what should be included in that new review of ethics law uh, as it happens closed yesterday 
Mm. <laughs> I'm sure there are mm. many people in Leinster House and beyond who now have some thoughts breed on what and should have been included in it. Well, this is it. And what's interesting with the annual report and go in and have a look at it, actually, the 2001 annual report, because as Hugh says, it outlines the recommendations for changes that it has been asking for for the past couple of years. And it's actually mm. quite stark the way mm. they've laid it out. On the left hand side, you have what the recommendation is. On the right hand side, you have a note that says what progress has been made. Yes. There uh, are and it's, it's pretty grim reading when you see is. them all listed up. Yeah, there are about 50 plus recommendations and progress was made on five mm. in 2021. Yeah. Um, and again, some of the recommendations seem to me quite simple and I can't really understand why they can't have been brought forward already and they don't necessarily need legislation. Um, one, for example, a code of conduct should be adopted for public servants and members of state boards in the wider public service. Straightforward. Mm. Expenditure limits should apply at referendums as well as elections. Yeah. Progress in 2021, none. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, provide for disposal of surplus donations in situations where a person is no longer required to maintain a political donations account. None. Which mm-hmm. means, I guess, effectively, a politician who goes out of business and they've got spare money in the account, there, there's nothing to stop the, stop it being used for And, uh, and on the politicians going out of business, explicit provision should be made to allow complaints against members of the Oireachtas in circumstances where the matter has come to light after the minister has mm. left office. So again, they just all seem, seem quite straightforward and it just feels unusual that nothing has been done about it. So yeah. I think, obviously, as a result of the Damon English scenario now this year and Michael McGrath did come out this week and say, said they will prioritise it. But go back through the other annual reports from the previous couple of years and you can see how annoyed I suppose mm-hmm. the, the executives in SIPO have been that they have been ignored and that they, there has been no focus on them over the past couple of years. So it's a shame that it has to take a couple of incidents one after the other for this to actually yeah. happen. Uh, you, just, you prompted me to bring up the uh, the 2021 annual report again mm. which, which has that same litany of uh, things they've recommended and things that haven't been done. Uh, for example um, SIPO points out that it should be a fa- it should be an offence uh, and there should be punishment for failing to open an account uh, to house all of your political donations. They're saying you know there's no punishment for not doing that. That's it. Uh, and has there been any action? None. Uh, provide for offences and penalties for failing to comply with three different parts of the Ethics and Public Office legislation. Uh, no punishment. Uh, provide for an offence for a failure to provide necessary information to an election agent uh, for the purposes of facilitating a statement. No uh, pr- pr- follow-up. Like Basically, you, you could I could literally spend the rest of the show reading out things that SIPO have Mm. asked for Um, you know provide a statutory deadline by which candidates must assign parts of their spending to political parties none it's it's a litany it is and it's been going on for years Um, there are no consequences you know and really what it does at the end of the day is it damages the perception of ethics in public office and also damages good governance you know Mm. as a government uh, we should be adhering they should be adhering to good governance charities have to do that Mm. in most cases they do Uh, but that's what the charities regulator is there for Um, so really this has has to be a focus over the next while. Hugh, there's also a parallel question in the middle of all of this as to who guards the Guardians because you say that there's now a government um, consultation which closed yesterday about reviewing ethics law and that's the responsibility of the Department of Public Expenditure. Pascal Donoghue who is the minister now responsible for that department since a month ago and he now also finds himself the subject of a personal complaint to Sipo. Yeah, uh, he does. Um, so this is a story that I have with Mao Sheen in the paper today um, and w- which we broke online yesterday um, that uh, Pascal Donoghue who's conducting a, ref- a review of his election expenses statements from seven years ago um, after a complaint was filed to Sipo. 
um, alleging that he uh, received a donor, an effective donation by uh, a company carrying out uh, the erection of posters in his constituency in the mm. 2016 general election. Um, we have been pursuing this story for a number of months and we were we were kind of stonewalled by Pascal Donoghue's office in the beginning and gradually they kind of let us know more and more information and admitted to the fact that this uh, these that this uh, vehicles had been used to uh, put up posters but that mm. this um, that, that the value of this uh, work carried out was within the um, didn't have to be declared okay. because it was within the donation limits so look so effectively Sipo, it's sometimes donations don't have to be disclosed <coughs> if they're worth under a certain amount. Yeah, and correct. And was contending that this service was worth less than the amount that he needed to disclose it. Yes, correct. Um, that's the contention. Ultimately, now there's a complaint in with Sippo. Sippo will have to determine that. Uh, Pascal Donoghue is now reviewing his election expenses statements from that period. Uh, it, at no point in his uh, election expense uh, declaration in 2016 does he mention um, this uh, this service that was carried out on his behalf by, uh, by the designer group, which is a, an engineering firm. Um, so, uh, look. Ultimately, Sippo will adjudicate on these on these matters. But um, certainly, it's it's a, it's a difficult it's difficult for Pascal Donoghue. I suppose it's it's not a good story for him. And mm. also, you make the very valid point that he is the minister now in charge of, of bringing through this ethics legislation. And um, so, you know, does that raise the potential of a, of a conflict there? Yeah. And I note that when we we put out the story last night, Sinn Fein were saying that Pascal Donoghue. Uh, I think Louise O'Reilly was saying that Pascal Donoghue needs to be a bit more forthcoming about all of this. So I dare say that's another issue that's going to yeah. be brought up by the opposition when the door returns. Uh, no. This week. Obviously, this is something that Sippo is still investigating, so we we don't have to let due process run its course. No. But there is again, Breda, an optics issue of if the government tries to bring forward some amendments to ethics law to to bring it up to speed to make it fit for purpose, because it presently pretty plainly isn't. isn't. Um, and you have a situation where Pascal Donner, who may find himself drafting amendments to a law which change, for example, the threshold mm-hmm. of a donation that you have to disclose, having himself been embroiled in a controversy about whether he had done so himself. And again, you know, going back to Damien English as well, he was saying he was in compliance with the, with the SIPO rules. Yeah. And others... Maybe there's an education process that needs to go on here That's, again with our yeah. with our with our elected representatives that they understand what yeah. the current rules are and how they should adhere to them. Because I think is it this month now that they all have to um, all of the TT, TDs have to review their application. Yeah. So um, whatever assets they own on New Year's Eve, basically they have to now set about filing. And I think the, the filing has to be done pretty promptly, but yeah. it's never published quickly, for ages. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, usually the Dole Register members' interest, I think, is published in kind of February. So, um, that, so that's the one for last year. Yeah. Um, so we should see that. I suppose sometime next month, but like one of the things which which I think a lot of politicians that you converse with on these issues kind of privately kind of say, well, you know, that it's sort of a, it's a tick box exercise. It's a once a year exercise where they have to declare all of this information. They don't kind of see it as sort of an ongoing sort of need for transparency. Now, some yeah. politicians would do. But others, I think, I just think, you know, I've got to fill out the form and I've got to submit all my returns to SIPO. And whereas, you know, uh, I did an interview mm. with Sherry Perot, the, the former head of ethics and lobbying in SIPO, who left last year. And she said that, like, politicians need to get beyond this idea that it's it's, it's a once it's a, a year fill yeah. out a form mm. exercise, that actually it's, it's a constant well, need isn't, to be isn't transparent. The, isn't about the problem, your though, that if, if the law only requires TDs to fill out a, a, yeah, a, a, a disclosure yeah. once a year, then of course they're going to concede it as a, as a once a year Absolutely. thing. There's no and culture. TDs of, are busy, you know, all TDs are Busy, yeah, but, he, but again, work, education mm-hmm. process about what is required, what is and is not within the regulations, and yeah. obviously if that's going to change, it that law will have to be be updated yeah. with them. But also to remember, right, when you take public office, 
you know, you have to expect that everything around your life comes into into full mm. public view. So there should be full transparency. There hasn't over the years. We know that. We've seen that. Um, but you're actually held to a higher standard. You nearly should be held to a higher mm. standard. So even though you're only supposed to do it once a year, if your circumstances change during the year, there should be an onus on them to, to make sure that that is reported. And that then would make sure that things like this aren't happening. Yeah. Uh, it, isn't there though, Hugh, and this is a point which is highlighted by Damien English, and I'll move on after this, the, the there seems to be, and again, this is another reason why the law needs updating, that there's apparently some ambiguity on whether Damien English was required to disclose in his mm-hmm. register of members' interests that he owned a home other than the one that his family lived in, because it's it's sort of <clears> ambiguous <throat> as to whether you need to disclose it if you're not gaining any income from it. So if it's sitting there lying idle, yeah, you may that, or may not was, have to say it. That was certainly the, um, that, that was the position prior to the, the, the ditch revealing that he hadn't, um, that he had effectively lied on a planning application in 2008. Uh, the, the, they had, the ditch had, had originally had a story that said that he hadn't declared this home in Castle Martin for 10 years and he, it, English's position was that he didn't have to declare it because it was for family use and it wasn't being used for any commercial purposes. Mm. Uh, and I think that that has been ratified by the Dole Committee members' interest. They've said before that yeah. basically, if you have like a family holiday home and it's there, but it's not driving any income, or if yeah. it's a property, I mean, it's, it's in one of the reasons I think why Michal Martin and the Tonishta has an interest. I think in four properties in total between his family home, a holiday home, uh, a holiday home that he owns with other family members. Yeah, and I think there's an apartment de- in Dublin which is in his wife's name. In Dublin that's in his wife's name. None of it he has to declare. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, or maybe only one of the properties he has to declare, but certainly. That sort of situation, I think, is is unsatisfactory from a transparency point of view. But it's with, entirely within the SIPO rules. But I think, again, that just shows yeah. up that but the SIPO rules well, are not for the purpose. The other question as SIPO then, themselves have said. And the other question is, why has Damien English's other house been lying idle with nobody living in it for the past number of years, considering yeah, we are in absolutely. the middle of a housing yeah. crisis? Um, so that's that's one sort of to, to think about. Yeah. And considering he was a former junior minister for... Uh, yeah, uh, something. So the base of the system is in pretty rag order, and it's something that we've spoken to Heather Humphreys about. We'll play that interview uh, just after twelve o'clock. Uh, lots more to discuss in the papers. Let's take a quick break. Back with uh, Breed and Hugh after this. Eleven forty-seven on on the record. Gavin Riley still with you here on News Talk until one o'clock this lunchtime. Five three one zero six for your texts uh, on the record. NT is our hashtag on Twitter. Hugh O'Connell and Breda Brown still with me in studio. Uh, we were just having a discussion during the ad break about whether uh, all of us in studio are entitled um, to a second COVID booster vaccine. Uh, we clarified the criteria that if you're aged between eighteen and forty-nine, you have to wait at least six months uh, since getting your last COVID vaccine or since the last time you tested positive for COVID, which may explain some of the reasons why the front page of the Sunday Times tells tells us that up to 97% of those eligible in the 18 to 49 group have not yet had a second booster. Uh, Figures provided by the HSE show that 71,000 people in that cohort had come forward as of last Friday night, which is just over 3% of the estimated population of that that demographic. But there are some uh, various theories as to why the take-up has been so low. Um, I don't know whether either of you want to volunteer why you think take-up might have been so low. Other than my theory, which is that I think a lot of people have probably had COVID in the last six months and aren't eligible. But that's actually probably one of the main reasons, I think. Um, The other reason that Anthony Staines, uh, Professor of Health Systems at DCU, is saying is that people just don't realise it's actually available, that there hasn't been as much publicity. I don't know if I buy that, because it's basically the only story between Christmas and New Year's. There have been a lot of ads um, over the past while, but I think people's lives have gotten quite back to normal. They're not as tuned into the news, maybe as much as they were previously. Yeah, and I think people don't see necessarily a necessity for it when it's not as if there are any restrictions on our personal freedom as there were 
for, yeah. for much yeah. of the two years when COVID was, was at its peak and you know the, there was a rush for, for booster shots at a time when restrictions were in place at a time when people were genuinely fearful about catching COVID over Christmas and that ruling them out of socialising with families I'm, th- I'm talking about mm. uh, the Christmas before Previously. last yeah. um, whereas now I don't think you know the, I, I think a lot of people were just kind of ill over Christmas with yeah. various infections and it wasn't yeah, COVID the, the mysterious lurch that wasn't COVID because mm. their antigen test said otherwise yeah. and you never know for certain then whether it was well, or not well yeah. exactly yeah and and I think people just generally feel as if it's it's, it's not necessarily something that they need to need to do it's it, certainly not a priority for them and you know? the other figure in this article by Julianne Corr in the front of the Sunday Times um, also mentions that there are 230 1,500 people in Ireland suffering from long COVID, suffering from conditions associated with long COVID. I thought that figure was really, really high. I hadn't realised it was was as strong as that. So again, what um, Professor Staines is saying here is just to maybe get the booster anyway to try and reduce your chances of getting long Mm. COVID. Uh, That's a higher number than I'd seen before. I think that the the Oireachtas Research Unit uh, compiled a paper which I think estimated that about 150,000 or so Mm. uh, were suffering from long COVID, but that was possibly based on earlier Mm. infection numbers. And of course, now so many people are testing positive via antigen tests and maybe not reporting that there's basically no way of knowing exactly how many cases there are in the country at any given time um Separately on the front page of the Sunday Independent of Sunday Times, excuse me, um, there's an analysis of the uh, postings to RIP.ie, and it, now it accepts that RIP.ie is not a, a brilliantly robust uh, reflection, but that it tends to be within five percent of the official figures uh, reported by the uh, by the CSO uh, for deaths in any particular time, and they're reporting that the number of uh, deaths now uh, is significantly in ahead of what it would usually be for this time of year. Uh, but that COVID-19 is no longer the primary mm. cause of death here, mm. which is a difficult one to to really try and find a full explanation for that you could imagine any number of theories, but there probably isn't well, one I, single I, contribution. No, I mean, I think it's a multitude of things. I mean, I think people have uh, become more susceptible to infections because they basically kind of shielded themselves for two years in a lot of cases. And, we, you know, we basically didn't have flu for two two seasons yeah. um, because of the COVID restrictions and because of people kind of adhering to mask wearing and so on and so forth, social distancing. Um, um, so people are picking up things and I suppose a lot of things went undiagnosed during COVID-19 mm. and we're mm. seeing a lot of anecdotal, not anecdotal, statistical evidence of, of more cancers being reported and um, that might have been picked up quicker. Um, if if um, if if COVID hadn't if the pandemic hadn't have happened, um, and also uh, I suppose you know the the other element of as well as as well is is um, the overcrowding in emergency departments the trolley crisis yes, indeed and there has been a discussion about that this week that people have died as a result of not being uh, you know adequately cared for in our mm. hospitals and mm. um, not through any fault of the staff but just because of the sheer numbers of people coming through. Uh, and the management of those people, the triaging of those people, and all of the issues that we've been hearing a lot about over the last few weeks, that like, and everyone, I suppose, in a position of authority. And I, I heard Stephen Mulvaney, the acting chief executive, on the radio on Friday. I think kind of reluctant to get into the space of you know admitting that people had died because of the hospital mm. trolley crisis, mm. but it is a reality that that you know people will have died because of that. Yeah, there was an estimate might on been, who might have got treatment. Estimates in one of the Sunday papers this week or last that um, effectively with the current level of overcrowding yeah. that fifty people per week. Were, were effectively dying yeah, unnecessarily. I, I saw one figure of 350, I suppose, over the course yeah. of the last few weeks, yeah. which is, is and pretty sobering. people are, you know, as I said, there's that delayed diagnosis. People were afraid to go to the doctor and it, they still are by the sounds of things um, because they can't get an appointment. 
um, which is an issue. Julianne Corr has has another piece as well here in the Sunday Times um, where she went and, and sat in with a, a couple of GP surgeries during the week. And in one particular case, you know, it was common response um, to get 100 phone calls uh, every single day during the winter months in this particular surgery. Um, at one point, the phone is ringing every minute, often with the yeah. two lines at once, mostly about respiratory illnesses. And according to staff, the practice is about 40% busier since Christmas. Um, there was 58 appointments. Uh, this is a Bridge Medical Centre in Kildare, where there are two GPs, medical technician and three admin staff. They had 58 <laughs> appointments scheduled for the day, as well as 12 slots that are kept clear then for urgent cases. Like 58 appointments mm. in one day, you know. Uh, a couple of textures say that they reckon that the low take-up might be down to vaccination fatigue and some feeling maybe a bit sceptical about whether they need a fourth vaccine for something that the, uh, the first three haven't managed to mm. put away. Uh, someone else texts to say that it's hard to get a convenient vaccination appointment anywhere, even harder to arrange it for kids at the same time. Doctors and pharmacies are very busy. Uh, I will say, I, my wife and I uh, got boosters um, in the days between Christmas and New Year's and I made the booking and I very sillily decided to book the two of us in for the same time and we had the kids with us and we, then we showed up going oh bugger well actually what are we going to do here because we can't bring the kids into the, the, the booth with us and they actually very kindly allowed the, both of us to go straight through to the holding area at the back and then to go and take turns going back in to get them done so that you could still stay there with your kids at the same time so it's something worth bearing in mind at least that was the case in City West they were very accommodating uh, for people who had young kids and, and fair play to them and I was very um, appreciative for doing so one thing that I think all of this highlights is that there was always two camps and certainly in the latter part of the the restrictions phase of the pandemic that the country was broken into two distinct cohorts those who saw COVID as a health threat and something that we needed to pursue measures to contain and then others who just saw it as a civil liberties nuisance that it was just something that was getting in the way of them wanting to live their lives or to gather in whatever way they saw fit and I suspect maybe that the the latter cohort has kind of won out because COVID still seems to be a significant health threat for a lot of people but that there just isn't very much urgency about doing anything about it. Yeah, but I mean, you know, ultimately the vaccinations have worked in terms of reducing instances of mm. serious illnesses. Serious illness, I should say. Um, like that, that is that is a proven fact at this mm. point. Um, because we're seeing, for example, um, in hospitals, you know, although there's been a, you know a rash of COVID cases uh, over the last few weeks, um, hospitals are not coming under pressure through COVID nineteen at least. Uh, in the same way they were in 2020 and 2021. Um, so, you know, I suppose restrictions had a purpose at the time, uh, particularly when vaccinations didn't exist. Um, but I, I don't think we'll go down that road again um, of restrictions mm. um, in the context of COVID-19, at least, in the context of this pandemic, which is still ongoing, I suppose, technically, um, because vaccinations have, have, have had such an impact, I mm. suppose. Uh, just for the record, uh, 230 patients uh, on trolleys in emergency departments around the country as of 8 o'clock this morning. That's per the HSE's own trolley gar figures. Mm. And also per the HSE last night, uh, 397 cases of COVID-19 in Irish hospitals, although it has been saying of late that around two-thirds of those are incidental diagnoses. Yeah. So you can extrapolate from that that maybe between 130 and 140 have been hospitalised by the effects of, of COVID-19 I mean, the, itself. The, the contrast to that is like, I think it was, it was 2,000 around this time um, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, pretty significant stuff uh, there's, there's a couple of other bits and pieces but to be honest I think we'd run well over time uh, if I was to go anywhere near them so I think I will draw a line under that uh, Hugh O'Connell uh, Deputy Political Editor at the Irish and Sunday Independence and Breda Brown Co-Founder and CEO of uh, Unique Media thank you both very much uh, for joining us in studio On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike 
different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.